Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. A few weeks ago, I had a friend share with me probably the pinnacle of right intent, very bad outcome. And so let me just share it with you. I wish I could. I wish I was him so I could give you all the details because it was absolutely hilarious. But I'll do my best. He was saying how was he when he was in college. He went to a small college and their mascot was the spirits. And uh, he was particularly fond at, at this moment of a girl on the women's soccer team. Now, this was this also the college's first year fielding a women's soccer team, and so they were terrible. They hadn't won a game the entire year, and they're coming up onto the last game of the season. And so he wants to support them and encourage them and also let this girl know that, you know, he's serious. And so he comes up with this plan. When none of his friends also saw what was this, how this could be problematic. Uh, and so they go to Walmart before the game, him and his friends, so he could find something to dress up as a spirit as to cheer on the team. So they go to Walmart. He walks through the bedding section and finds uh, this white bedspread. And so he's like, it's perfect. This will work. He takes a white bed sheet, cuts a hole in it. He's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drape it over my body. And what, what, as fate would have it, it also comes with a white pillowcase. So I'm going to cut two holes. I'm going to cut two holes in it, and I'll wear it. You know, as the head, I'll be a spirit. And so he's riding to the game. They're a few minutes late. Again, his friend also has, is completely oblivious to what's going on. They get there, and again, he's excited. He wants to make a great impression. He puts on the, the bed sheet, puts on the pillowcase, and starts running towards the field. Now the game was going on, but it was a small school, so everybody could see him. And he's yelling, "Go spirits! Go spirits!" All these things. He's you know in the distance. He's got a pillowcase on, so he's kind of muffled. They don't know what he's saying. As he's running, he says, "You know, as the wind was blowing it, it made his uh, pillowcase head kind of make it more of a cone shape." And he's running straight to the field. Now to make matters worse, he was a part of a predominantly white school, and they were playing a pre predominantly African American school for the final game of the year. So he's running to the field. Everybody is just like, like, what? And so he gets there. He gets to his group of friends, and they're all staring at him. And at this point, it clicks. Oh, this probably wasn't the best idea. Now, if you're me at this moment, you have one or two options. You can kind of, you know, sit there and have everyone stare at you, or you can just turn around and run away. Like, just don't, just don't come back. Like, it's bad enough. He decides well, this is embarrassing. Let me just go ahead and take off my, uh, my pillowcase so everybody could see who it was, right? Everybody's staring at him, and they're like, he's like, this is a right, perfect example of right intent, terrible application, right? It was absolutely awful. Now, why do I share this story? Uh, because this morning, we're going to be looking at this question. Can you do uh, a good thing the wrong way? right? Can you do a good thing the wrong way? I think all of us, maybe not to that extent, but have had times in our lives where we have done things, right? We, well, we had the best of intentions, but it didn't play out the way that we wanted it to play out, and that is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you if you want to read along. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Um, if you've been here the past, uh, well, most of this year, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, in a series called Masterclass, where Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, which is now modern-day Greece, within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's essentially telling them how the gospel impacts every area of our lives. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been particularly talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit empowers believers to love and encourage other people. And all these kind of messages go together, so I can't kind of articulate everything that's been said. So if you're interested, go back and listen to the previous two weeks and next week as well. Uh, but we'll be in chapter 14. Again, if you were here last week, you might have noticed how we went from chapter 12 to chapter 14, what happened to 13. I would love to tell you there was some Holy Spirit awesomeness that made us move things around. 
But with our Thursday night services, we just had to change things around. So next week is chapter 13, but it doesn't really change much of what we're getting it to today. And so here's what Paul says, verse 1. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So again, what he's been saying throughout this whole book is that we are the, the, the primary purpose for believers is to love and build each other up. Even though we have the right to do something, even if it's not necessarily a sin to do something, if it's not good for others, we should refrain. Now, this is coming right after chapter 13, which if whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have, we have all heard chapter 13. This is, the, this is the passage that is read in every wedding, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. And Paul's point here is that you cannot love the way we are called to love without the power of the Spirit in your life. So again, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. In other words, that manifestations of the Spirit uh, in our lives, the primary purposes of those things are not for you to look cool in front of other people, but to love and encourage the people that God has called us to love and encourage. So again, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation, or the person who prophesies to people is for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. You might be talking like, Okay, what is actually going on here? Let me just kind of explain it real quick. Uh, Paul, in this section, is going to be talking about tongues primarily. And in the second part of chapter 14, which we're going to get to in two weeks, he's talking about prophecy primarily. So I would encourage you to kind of come back in two weeks and next week too, because why not, to put these things together because they really do go together. But basically what he's saying here is this, that prophecy, and for our purposes just for today, just think of it as speaking life and conviction into other people's lives is preferred over tongues because if you are speaking in tongues, you are speaking in a language that nobody, and I'll explain tongues in a second, but nobody around you would understand. So in a public gathering, which is what Paul is talking about with starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in a public gathering, speaking in tongues is not always beneficial because people don't know what's going on. Remember why? Because the primary purpose of the Spirit manifesting and moving in our lives is to love and build others up not just for our own purposes. Yes, they can encourage us and grow in our faith, help us grow in our faith, but they're not for us primarily. They're for other people. And so uninterrupted tongues, as Paul says, it's kind of like just speaking to God while prophecy is speaking to humans, right? They can actually understand what you're saying, and therefore it can build people up. So in a public gathering, uh, prophecy is preferred. Now, just to, because it's going on here, you might be like, what is tongues? Like, what is actually happening? Uh, in the New Testament, uh, speaking in tongues, it comes out in one of two ways. Uh, one way is that you are actually speaking real human languages that you just have never been taught. So, for example, at Pentecost, this is 50 days after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. At this point, Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. Peter, who was one of the leaders, one of the foundational leaders of the early church, essentially gives a sermon, and this is the day that the Holy Spirit actually comes down and begins to dwell inside of all followers of Christ. And what happens is he gives this sermon, over 3,000 people give their life to Jesus that day, and part of the way that reason that happened is because this happened in Jerusalem, there was a really big festival going on, so you had a lot of Jews and people traveling to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean Sea, from all over the world at that
that point. And after they hear uh, Peter's sermon, they start speaking in other tongues. And so they start speaking in foreign languages that other people were beginning to hear. And so in other words, people were preaching the gospel in other languages that people that spoke those languages were actually hearing the gospel and becoming followers of Jesus. So one way to speak in tongues and scripturally throughout the New Testament is that you actually speak languages that you may have not heard, may have not learned, but you're actually speaking a human language that other people can understand. The other way of speaking in tongues, which seems to happen more often, uh, especially what's going on in 1 Corinthians, is not that they're speaking other languages, but they're speaking what's kind of maybe traditionally known as in angelic languages. So they're saying things that nobody can understand. They're not speaking a human language. They're just kind of saying things that only God and really his spirit can understand, but they're speaking these things. And so everybody, unless you have someone who at the same time is being manifested in the spirit in some way to interpret what they're actually saying so everyone can understand, it's not beneficial. And what seems to be happening here is that there's nobody there interpreting. And so you have all these people at the same time at this kind of uh, public worship gathering where they're coming together, they're speaking in tongues, and nobody knows what's going on. In other words, what they're doing is not necessarily wrong, it's not necessarily sinful, but it's not helpful. And so what I want to do this morning is I don't, I never want us just to kind of read the scripture and be like, okay, that's interesting. At the end of the day, we want to, we want it to seek into our lives. We want it to actually give us transformation. And so I want to teach what's going on, but I also want to make it applicable for our context, because if you're a part of New City, clearly this is not an issue that's going on right now. And so here's what I would, I would say we need to know, really the heart of what Paul is getting at. And this is really what we've been talking about the last few weeks as we talk about spiritual manifestations, and that's this that why is greater than what. In other words, why you do what you do is more important than what you actually do. We see this all throughout Scripture. Even Jesus himself, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is talking about you don't murder. That's great, but you still harbor anger in your heart. In other words, that Jesus is after our hearts and after our motivations, and we can do good things, and we can fake it uh, any day of the week. But it's not about what you do so much as why you do what you do. And remember, our command, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to love God and love others. And so our primary motivation is what is important, not just what we actually do. Let me give you an example. When I was, um, I don't know, like sixth grade, uh, sixth, seventh grade, probably sixth grade, the church that I grew up in was starting a youth band. Which, you know, when you're in sixth grade, that's your world. I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be cool. I'm going to be in the youth band. I'm going to be on stage or whatever, which really isn't that cool, but it was to me. Uh, and so I, so I was going to play drums. And I was so excited. Now, you could say, you know, it's good to be in the band to help people worship. Like, that's a good thing. That's a good what, right? But my motivation was not to, like, help people worship. It was to be like, hey, look how cool I am. Now, the irony of it was is I had just started trying to learn how to play drums, and so the guy who was leading the youth band told me I was only allowed to play the beat. I wasn't allowed to do any fills, play any toms, any cymbals, because every time I attempted, I would speed up or slow down, and it sounded terrible. So I thought I was cool, and I wasn't even cool, right? It was not even good, right? But my motivation wasn't even there. And what they're doing is not necessarily wrong. They're seeking the Spirit. That's great. But it seems to be that their motivation is not, for some of the Corinthians that is, to love and build up other people. Their motivation is to say, hey, look at me, look at what I can do. And Paul's saying, no, 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 why you do what you do is more important than what you're actually doing. And so he continues by saying this in verse 6. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. 
In other words, what he's saying here is what good is it if I preach and no one knows what I'm actually saying? Now, you might be saying, Dylan, we don't know what you're actually saying half the time anyway. And I get it, but at least I'm trying here, okay? At least I'm trying here. Again, he's not saying that speaking in tongues is bad. Let me just be clear. But he's saying, even if I, Paul, come to you in Corinth and start to preach, and I speak in tongues and no one knows what I'm saying, what good is it? And now he's going to give an example of what he means by this. Verse 7. He says, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. His point is like this. Think of it like a musical instrument. right? If you don't know how to play a musical instrument... No, it's not going to sound good. Like the bugle, like a battle cry. If you don't actually play the battle cry, the army's not going to know it's time to march. Or for me, I, this is a, a really funny example for me. Roman, our, our one-and-a-half-year-old, loves music. He dances, he claps, he like what I say, he likes to scream, sing all the time. And we have these two like little kid uh, play ukuleles. And he's always taking one of the ukuleles, he sets it in his lap, and he like rips the strings to like they're going to break. And he's just like, I, 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 all the time. And it's awesome and it's hilarious, but it sounds terrible. Now he's a year and a half old, so what do you, what do you think I do? I lie to him like any good parent. I'm like, that sounds awesome, that's so great, you keep going. But if he were to be up here, for example, on a Sunday morning, you ain't worshiping to that. You'd be like, what is going on? That's what he's saying. Like, that's what you sound like in a public gathering where many people are gathered and no one can interpret, right, what you do. Like, nobody knows what is actually going on. Or he gives another example that they would have definitely understood. Verse 10. He says, there are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in the building up of the church. In other words, as a port city, Corinth was a port city, they would have understood the frustration of being around people who spoke different languages, right? It would have made, it made trade difficult. It made communicating difficult when you had people come in and couldn't speak languages. They, they all spoke different languages. He said, that's difficult. You don't know what is going on. And his point here is like in a public gathering, when people are coming, do not confuse people. Like People will not know what is going on. He's saying, be zealous for spiritual gifts, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, Paul doesn't actually call them spiritual gifts. A more literal translation would be uh, the spirituals, which sounds kind of confusing. But his point is, uh, be zealous for the Spirit to work in your life. That is a good thing. But make sure your motivation is primarily to seek and build other people up before it is to say, look, how, look at all the awesome things I can do. In other words, clearly the issue here was speaking in tongues. Now, I have put this off for a couple of weeks, and I'm still not going to fully answer the question until two weeks from now uh, when we talk about prophecy. But the question is this. What does this mean for us today? Right? Like, do we still do these things? I think sometimes we make this distinction that, to me, it does not seem that the New Testament makes between maybe some of the what are stereotypically known as the supernatural gifts, like uh, tongues and healing and prophecy, and from everything else. As we've been talking about, it seems to be a more consistent way to look at spiritual manifestations, not as when you become a Christian, you get like one or two or three, and that's what you have until you die. Instead, what seems to be happening is that Paul's point is that the Spirit can manifest himself in different ways in your life at different 
different times. You should not assume that God cannot use me in this way because it's not about you. It's about what the Spirit might do through you if you're open and intentional about loving and serving other people. And so we're not going to talk about this morning how this plays out other than to say it does not seem, and, and, and again, there's, there's debate on this, and, and the point is we should love and, and encourage wherever you fall on this line, but it would seem, at least to me, I guess I should say that, that, that Paul himself is not making a distinction between what we uh, stereotypically call supernatural gifts, because at the end of the day, they are all supernatural. They are all manifestations of the Spirit, and Paul says we should pursue all of them, and we'll talk about what that looks like in two weeks, so make sure we come back, but I just want to mention that here since he's talking about tongues, but again, making this practical for us today, we talked about why what you do is more important than than, uh, why, or why you do what you do is more important than what you do. Here's why we need to understand that, really the, the underlying principle behind what Paul is saying, and that's this. That if the why is wrong, the what doesn't matter. Ultimately, if the why is wrong, the what doesn't matter. Again, for their context, they're speaking in tongues. That's fine. What they're doing is fine. But why they're doing it is not good. And so he's saying you're doing these things, and it doesn't matter. And in fact, it's actually a detriment to other people. If the why is wrong, the what doesn't matter. Think of it this way. When I was, again, probably on fifth or sixth grade, I got in trouble, which somehow I always seemed to get in trouble. I don't know what that was. My parents made mistakes, I guess. They didn't really know. And so, again, I'm in trouble, and I find myself grounded, which seemed to happen like every other week. And uh, it was a Saturday or Sunday. I did something to my mom, her feelings. I don't remember what I did exactly. But I wanted to go outside and play because all my friends were outside. And so I come up with this plan because she wasn't home. I said, what if I call her and apologize? I'm thinking, that's a great idea. I'm going to apologize. She's going to let me outside. So I call her, and I apologize. Or, or I call her. She's like, that's weird. Why are you calling me? And I said, I'm sorry for what I did. Me thinking I'm going to get away with this, somehow she realized the fact that I probably had never apologized once in my life until this point, that I probably wasn't apologizing because I was really sorry. And so she says, essentially, I'm glad you called, but you're only calling to apologize, so I'll let you go outside. And I said, why would you think that, right? And so long story short, she says, I appreciate you apologizing. You're still grounded. Right? Why? Why? Because what I did was a good thing, but my motivation was not good, and it was quite clear in that situation. What they're doing is not wrong, but their motivation isn't good because especially, again, when you come to gather publicly with one another, our motivation is to love and encourage others, not just ourselves. Again, speaking in tongues is not a bad thing, but Paul is saying in a public setting, if nobody else knows what you're saying, it's not the best place and context for it. And so he continues uh, by saying this in verse 13 to explain his point even further. He says, therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray. That also could be translated must pray. In other words, he's like commanding us to do this, that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful because I don't know what I'm saying and neither would anybody else. What then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may be very well, you may very well be giving thanks, uh, but the other person is not built up. In other words, he's saying if uh, speaking in tongue is going to happen around other people, there should be a prayer for someone to actually be able to interpret what they're saying. And if there is not, which there wasn't in this case, it is not helpful because nobody can say amen or be encouraged by your prayers because no one knows what you're saying. So again, he says this in verse 18. He says, but I give thanks or I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. 
Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. In other words, Paul himself seemed to speak in tongues quite frequently, and he's glad that he does it. But he's saying, in a public gathering, I'm going to refrain so that people can actually be built up by what I'm actually saying. He's saying, what you're doing, it's not sinful. It's not sinful. It's just the context in which you're doing it is not helpful. Why? Because we are supposed to be zealous over the Spirit to manifest in our life, but we ought to do it with the primary motivation to love and encourage other people. Now, that being said, again, I feel like this has kind of been the point the last few weeks, and I, I don't want it to become repetitive, but I think it is good for us to see it because that's what he's saying. Uh, maybe to put it a different way, right? Because we want to, to try to make this practical. Like, what does it look like for me to make love and encouragement for other people my primary motivation? Uh, I was reading a book recently uh, by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you're someone like me who always feels like you have to be doing, it's a phenomenal book. It was really helpful. And he's basically talking about following the way of Jesus, how Jesus had more to do with anyone else than anyone else, but you never in the Gospels got the sense that he was hurried, ever. He was never busy, ever. And he proposed this question. I think this is helpful. Maybe this is for me, but it's helpful to be like, okay, how can I uh, make sure that love is my primary motivation? He says, ask yourself this question. What would Jesus do if he were me? If he were in my situation, what would he do? Now, if, when I was a kid, the, the WWJD bracelets got really big. And they're still around today, right? What would Jesus do? And, I, and it was great, but I'd always be like, man, I don't know what Jesus would do. Like, how am I supposed to know? He would probably heal somebody. He, I don't know what he would do. Like, I ain't Jesus, right? But reframing it this way means, yeah, you're not Jesus. But if Jesus was in your situation, maybe you wouldn't do exactly what Jesus do. But what do you think he would do? How would he respond? How would he love or give grace and forgiveness? And even if you maybe get it wrong, the fact that your heart has the right posture is what, what, is what God is ultimately after. So I don't know if it's helpful for you, but it's extremely helpful for me in the times that I'm frustrated, in the times that I'm with someone I don't want to be with, or when things are not going the way that I want them to go. What would Jesus do if he were me? If you were in my situation, my circumstance, how do I think he might respond to this? You can think of it this way. Remember the, uh, the JFK quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. If you were to maybe Jesus juke it a little bit, you would say, ask not what other people can do for you, but what you can do for others. Because this is exactly what Jesus did for us when he came and gave his life for us. And not because God wanted us or not because he needed us for anything, but simply because he loves us and wanted us to experience a relationship with him. Jesus exemplified us for this, and we follow him in that example and how we love and treat other people. That's Paul's point. And so he continues by saying this in verse 20. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adults in your thinking. In other words, when it comes to evil, infants can't do very much. Uh, they're kind of self, maybe they're selfish, maybe they do whatever they want to do, but they, they don't have the physical capacity, the strength, the motor skills. Like, they ain't doing anything. So when it comes to being evil or being, uh, being evil, be like an infant, right? Don't do evil, avoid it. But when it comes to how you treat other people, do not be an infant. Be a mature adult. Because here's what, is, what do we know about infants? They're selfish. Now, part, part of the reason they're selfish is because, like all of us, we're all sinful. But also because they're just trying to survive. And so they're crying. They want you to change your diaper. They want you to feed them. It's all about them, 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 right? If you have kids, you say amen to that, right? And he's like, don't be like that. You're not an infant. So do not, when it comes to the spiritual manifestations or just how you live, don't be selfish. Don't live for you. Be mature. Be wise. And seek to build up other people. And then again, talking about speaking in tongues, he says this, verse 21. He says, it is written in the law 
that I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to an account by all. Now, there's a lot of kind of maybe de- de- debate and confusion about what's going on here. Uh, we're not going to get into this morning. I'll just make a couple of a quick points. First, uh, when he says that speaking in tongues is a sign to unbelievers, again, we're not exactly sure what he might be meaning by that, uh, but, but it could be that it's a, it's a sign for unbelievers in a negative sense. So just like here at New City Church, not everybody that comes on a Sunday is a follower of Jesus. Some people have questions, they have doubts, they're trying to seek this thing out. And if everybody is speaking in tongues, they won't understand, they don't know what's going on. But prophecy, on the other hand, which again we'll talk about in a few weeks, but because it's spoken in the normal language, people, can, people that aren't followers of Jesus can see and understand and learn and might be convicted and shown that God actually loves them. Again, another reason, he's, Paul is saying this, this is why order in church services matters, why we don't all do whatever we want to do. Uh, because it matters. If everyone is speaking in tongues, again, it would make people think that you're crazy, whereas if you're prophesying, it's better so that an, under, an unbeliever might understand, and the Spirit might convict in order that verse 25 can happen, that the secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down in worship, proclaiming, God is really among you. In other words, he's saying this, seek and understand God and present the gospel and how you teach and how you interact and how you serve and how you love, primarily to build one another up and also so unbelievers might come to meet and know Jesus. The people would know this is a safe space to ask their questions, to have doubts, so that ultimately, hopefully, people might be see Jesus and might be changed by him. In other words, here's why it's important for us uh, to be seeking what is good for other people over our own, or maybe to ask our question, what would Jesus do if you're me? Here's, here's why. It's so that you may be used by God. So that you may be used by God when your motivation is to love people. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible, how, how sinful or unsinful your past may or may not be, what you've done in the past, how much money you have. It's not about that. It's simply, God, I love you. Will you use me? And that is who he uses. Now, here's what I know. Sometimes we say things like this, and we're like, yeah, I get it. Like, that's a good thing. I'm supposed to love other people. I just make it important. I want to, real quick, I just want to give you a couple of examples of how this has happened at New City Church in the past month. To show you, I think sometimes we think, even, even on a Sunday, right, I serve, I give, I'm a part of what's going on, but do what, does my contribution actually make a difference? Let me just give you an example to encourage you to let you know that it does. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody who was invited by a friend after one of our services uh, with tears in their eyes is explaining how they have a church background. They kind of grew up around church, but it's been a while. Uh, this happened a few weeks ago, uh, and they're just getting connected again. And, and with tears in their eyes, they say this. Every Sunday I show up here, I am loved and I am welcomed. People don't know me. They don't know anything about me. I've never seen these people before, but they love me and they welcome me every week. I am so excited to make New City Church my home. That doesn't happen because of what I'm saying on stage. That happens when people come and serve and love other people. Uh, or maybe think of it this way. I want to read you an email that I got a couple of weeks ago uh, by one of our community group leaders. Um, I will kind of ch- change it a little bit, but here's what it says. This person emailed the staff at New City Church and said this. 
Uh, my community group is made up of mostly of people who are relatively new to New City Church. So I want to drop you a brief note to let you know how your continued commitment to hospitality at our church is having a positive impact on our people. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, I get it. I guess, like, as leaders, we try to create a culture of this, but it's you that are doing this. So I'm reading this because of what you've done. So during our first two meetings, my group has shared that they have felt more welcomed at New City Church than at any other church they've attended. Now, I want to be clear. We're not in competition with other churches. Like, we pray for other churches. We want them to do well. This is just to encourage you to say, hey, what you're doing matters. She said that one person uh, mentioned that when another person, this other person is someone that comes to New City, this first person is a new person, uh, invited her to coffee after she first attended a service, it made her feel like someone noticed her and really wanted her to come back. Uh, a different new person mentioned that while he normally slips in and out af- of a church service, there's always this other person who's been part of New City for a while who sees him, says hi with his name, and asks him how his week is going. And he said it makes him really feel like this person is invested in him attending New City Church. So they're not just saying hi, but they actually want them to be here. I know that our church's commitment to showing Jesus' love through hospitality is intentional that each of you work hard to make sure that that is at the front of each volunteer's mind on Sundays and Thursdays, and that each of you are committed to living that out in your daily lives. Thank you for your continued commitment to demonstrating Christ's love for others. Or a couple weeks ago, one of our Thursday night services, someone who's been coming to our Thursday night services who was new and says, every week I come, I get greeted in the parking lot, in the lobby, in the auditorium. Like, I can't come in, I can't, I can't slip out. Now, if you're introverted, maybe that's a little intimidating, I don't know. But he said, I've never felt so welcome in my life that he enjoys coming because he feels like there's a community here. Why do I share that? That when you're desiring to, be seek, to seek and love other people, but God has loved us, you are actually being used and you are actually making a difference. It's actually happening. So as I close, here's really what I would say is the main point for what we're talking about today. Again, this is in the context uh, of asking the Spirit to use us so that we can love and serve other people. Here's what we would say. That the power of the Spirit in your life is measured by how you love. The power of the Spirit in your life is not measured by how much biblical knowledge you have. It's not measured by what, the, the, what ways the Spirit may be using you. In their case, a lot of these people were speaking and telling them, that is, not a, that is not a measure of how the Spirit is moving. How the Spirit is moving, a measurement of that is how well you are seeking and loving other people. That shows whether or not God is using you. And again, what's encouragement to all of us is not about you and what you've done and trying really hard and not sinning this week and then he'll use you. No, no, no. To God, I've fallen short. I need you. I just want to be used by you. And that is who God uses. In other words, people use, God uses exactly people just like you. Now, to be clear, this is not just about being nice and kind, right? Anybody can be nice and kind. You don't, have to, you don't have to be a believer to be nice and kind. But this is about asking the Spirit to manifest himself in our lives so that we can love other people ultimately in response to the gospel. What did Jesus do? He came not because he needed us or he wanted something from us, but simply to lay down his life, to live the perfect life that we could not live, to defeat sin and death and the power of darkness. It's not about you trying really hard. It's about you and I trusting and following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, whether it's been a week or 50 years, God can and will use you. And the invitation is to come and follow him. What we say almost every week here, that because of what Jesus has done, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. So we don't love other people. We don't seek to encourage other people to make God love us more. We do it in response because why we want as many people as possible to meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. 
And you and I just need to be reminded that does not just happen by somebody preaching a message on Sundays. That happens when we love and encourage other people. And the power of the Spirit in your life is measured by how you love. You ask God, God, how can I love and serve you this week? And that is when the Spirit shows up. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you're a God that uses broken people, people that don't have it all together, people who don't know everything, people who don't have all the answers. You use people who simply want to be made available by you. And as we've been talking about these past few weeks, particularly about the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, would we be a church? And for those that are here this morning that are followers of you, may they know that you don't just want them to hear about this information, that you want them and me to know that you actually want to use us. And you use us, not, by being, not when we're perfect, by submitting ourselves, God, would you use us this week? And so my prayer is that this wouldn't be just kind of like some theoretical knowledge, that, we, that you would convict us, that you would show us this week, you would show us how even tomorrow you can use us in ways to love and encourage other people. And uh, my prayer for those that are here this morning that may be wrestling with doubts, confusions, that may not yet be followers of you, may they know that you love them, that you care for them, that you desire them, that you want to give them your grace and your forgiveness and your spirit. And that happens not when they get all the questions answered, not when they figure out their life, but when they lay it down to you and you accept us right where we are. So would you remind all of us this morning of your goodness, of your grace, and of your power? And would you give us minds to, to think, uh, eyes to see, to be clearly intentional this week of how we can love other people for your good and your glory. God, thank you for the gift of your son, that it's an undeserved gift that you would lay down your life for us, that you would give us grace, forgiveness, and not just stop there, but you would also give us your spirit so that we can play a part in your mission. So God, may we look to you, may we seek you, may we chase after you so that we can play our small, small role and help people see who you are and grow in a relationship with you. Jesus, thank you for your grace. In your name I pray.